It can also help them ease the intensity and the demand of their work life and because they have so much that they're responsible for as a business owner. Welcome to Spartan Pro Show, everybody. The Spartan Pro Show is where you tune in to grow personally, grow professionally, and grow your business. No matter how your role is defined by your organization, you are a leader. Today, we have Abby Donnelly with us. Uh, I'm David Childs, CEO of Spartan Planning, and we have David Lillard, the president of Spartan Branding. Abby is the CEO of the Leadership and Legacy Group. She has a diverse background that continues to sharpen her ability to confidently walk the most seasoned executives and business owners through business and life transitions. She serves on various public, private, and nonprofit boards. When you think about leadership challenges, succession planning, or building the value of your business, you should think Abby. Abby, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, we're, we're going to dive into a question here. I know you had some, some quick thoughts about people taking notes along the way. Why don't you share that for a second? Yeah, sure. So I'd like to invite everybody that's watching or listening to this to grab a pen and a piece of paper. And what I'd like to challenge you to do is as we're going through today's program to think to yourself, how can this apply to me? I think when we offer ourselves a question, our brain wants to answer it. And so you're going to get more value out of today's program if you continue to ask yourself, how can this apply to me? And your brain will come up with solutions. So I think you'll be much more intentional about what you're going to get if you do that. That's a great idea. Um, <clears throat> so, of course, we're thrilled to have you here. And, you know, I want to start off by diving into one of your most recent achievements uh, and certifications you obtained, which was the Value Builder Certification. Uh, most of our listeners are business owners, business leaders, or successful executives around the country. So what is the Value Builder Certification and why does it matter to you and your clients as well as our listeners? Yeah, so I'm going to answer that question two ways. I'm going to answer it how I would have answered it had we had this conversation six weeks ago and talk a little bit more about how I think it applies today. So um, the, the Value process in effect is designed to help a business owner increase the value of their business. And so, you know, they can get a significantly higher offer because it looks at the business through the lens of a buyer and what they're willing to pay for. It can also help them ease the intensity and the demand of their work life. And because they have so much that they're responsible for as a business owner, the business and the livelihood of the people that work for them so, you know, the, the last piece is around helping them grow their business in a way that enables them to build a business that reflects their core values and the life that they want to lead. Um, so all of that is still true today, but as we see the devastating effects of COVID-19 on our economy, um, I personally am acutely grateful for the opportunity to use this methodology to help businesses both survive and thrive. And I look at it in four different ways. One is I think there are businesses out there that need to recover from the economic downturn. And unfortunately, there are a lot of those out there. Hmm. I also believe that there are businesses that are more in the rebuilding value of their business mode. And then there are businesses that are going to need to reinvent themselves. 
So their old model of operation probably isn't going to be as profitable or even as viable in the new normal, whatever that looks like. And then the last is relaunching. And so recover, rebuild, reinvent, and relaunch. And it's unfortunately not about getting back to normal because I think we're all gonna have to pivot to create whatever that new normal is. So I can share a little bit about what Value Builder is, but that's really the outcome that I think it is most effectively able to help business owners do now. When, when you say pivot, I, I do want to hear more about the value builder specifically, but when you said, you know, when, when folks reinvent themselves, which I, I heard pivot, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, pivot can be uh, change an offering. It can be add a new offering. I guess there's a lot of things there. Focus on that aspect for a moment of the value builder. How, how do they reinvent themselves or what are some examples of, of what folks could do? Yeah, so I think there are you know, a lot of examples that are out there today that you've probably heard about, like, um, you know, companies that are now making face masks or ventilators. I've got a client that has an automation company and is now making ventilators for hospital systems. There are examples of, you know, uh, spirit companies making hand sanitizer. So there are a lot of those kinds of companies, but I also think that we can pivot in some ways of really re-looking at how we operate our business today. So for example, there are tons of people that are stuck at home. You know, whether we like it or not, we're not going anywhere. The events have all been canceled and we've been um, asked to stay sheltered in place. And so what can your business do to pivot, to entertain or to engage people that are at home? You know, one of the ideas that I thought about is uh, you can still get things delivered. So could you, create a business that offers goodie bags that you maybe you send to your family that is living in another part of the, the world today that gets delivered every week or every month, you know, some big surprise because there aren't very many good surprises happening right now. Um, other things are, could you, you know, if you've got excess capacity, we, we often don't think about how our excess capacity can help others. Can we lend it? Can we share it? Can we reallocate it? Can we, you know, use the, um, the time to pivot in a way that enables us to form a stronger relationship or a different relationship with our suppliers, with our customers? Um, so things like that, can you, uh, can you hire people that are rock stars that are looking for work right now and shift how you're able to deliver what you deliver. Right. Well, it's interesting. I just, I just, uh, you mentioned pivoting or a spirit company pivoting into hand sanitizer, got bluegrass distillers right here, hand sanitizer. And so uh, he's actually going to be on our show here in a couple of weeks. And we have him as Nathan Brown. We're going to have him interviewed about how he pivoted, why he pivoted, what that looks like for the business. And, and so the service perspective as well as the business perspective. So it's interesting you mentioned that because I got that sitting here right next to me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, I, I just think that's, that's fascinating. Listening back to uh, Canlis, which is, you know, a well-known, world-renowned restaurant in Seattle that's pivoted from super high dining, uh, super high-level dining where people go there for their engagement or when their parents going to die and one of their last meals. I mean, th this is a precious place for people to go. And 
and when when they had to shut down, Seattle was one of the earlier uh, cities that got hit, and so they had to shut down quickly. And they they posted they were one of the first companies that I was aware of that pivoted in a major way, and they said Seattle does not need fine dining right now. Seattle needs food, and so they pivoted and they opened up. I'm going to butcher, but they opened up three different things. One was like a drive-through breakfast meal pack, a bagel. I think it was a bagel drive-through. And then they did meal deliveries at night. And then I think they had a wine uh, corkings, you know, some wine delivery service that they opened up all three in just a matter of a day or two. <clears throat> they shut down their fine dining, opened up these. So it's just, it's really neat to see companies doing that. And it, it's, it shows how you could build value or retain value in your business. Well, I think it's all about stepping back and looking at what assets and what systems you have access to and what needs are out there and creating a new match between those needs in a, in a way that's, if not profitable, at least sustainable through this period of time until you find a new way of operating moving into the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. In um, Winston-Salem that is, that became a uh, butcher shop. They are now selling meat uh, for pickup and takeout. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Ton, tons of great examples. Um, and so, you know, I, I know you mentioned you could go a little bit more into to value builder. Can, can you give us some insight in, into what that looks like uh, when you work with clients and, and use that value, value builder uh, system? Yeah, so uh, the value builder system has eight drivers of business value. And of course, you know, certified value builders are the guy that uh, takes business owners through that. And the beauty of the system is that you can choose to focus on any one of those or all eight of those, depending on what, you know, the business owner wants to get out of the process. So some of the factors that might influence them are how much money they want or need before they're going to exit. You know, one of the things that I think is probably going to play out, it'll be interesting to see through COVID-19 and the economic implications. I think there are a lot of business owners that are in their mid 60s, 70s even. Um, and I certainly know of a few that are in their early 80s that are still active in their business. And given what it's going to take to recover, rebuild, reinvent and relaunch, I'm suspecting that some critical mass of them are just not going to want to invest that again. They're not, you know, they were, 2008 was hard and many of them were able to figure out how to recover from that and how to grow and have a really nice business. And now looking at it thinking, do I really want to go through this again? So figuring out how much money they want or need before they exit is a, a valuable look. And then how much longer they want to stay in business, what skills and resources they're willing to invest to do that reinvention or pivot, and then the legacy that they want to leave. You know, what does the, the business look like as they transition it to their successor or a new, a new buyer? So, um, so the, the value drivers are all designed to help them in any one of those four different ways. And some examples of the value drivers that, um, that I think are most relevant now, obviously all eight of them can be used, but I think scaling your business, especially if you're gonna scale in new and different ways, where you're looking at what are the highest um, part, what are the, the strongest ROI that I can get for the lowest investment risk and mm -hmm. that part of the business. One of the things that I think plays to your strengths, 
David, with Spartan Branding is marketing your key differentiators. And that's exactly what I see you doing right now. You're helping business owners figure out how do they identify what their key differentiators are and then how do they position it. And the message may be very different today than it would have been six weeks ago because you know the world has changed and what people need is so different. One of the other ones that I really love in Value Builder is uh, recurring revenue models. So uh, John Morlow, who wrote the book Built to Sell and also wrote The Automatic Customer, um, he talks about how every business has opportunities to create recurring revenue. And that's different than reoccurring re revenue, which is where you have the same customer coming, you know, on a regular basis. Recurring revenue is where it's automatic. They're just, you know, you have to stop the buying. And so one of the examples that I've teased my, with my husband about is we used to have friends that we would go to um, dinner at Asahi Japanese restaurant every Friday night. They would pick us up at 645. And that was our habit. And we had to actually tell the friends, don't come pick us up. We're going to be out of town. Otherwise, they would have come to our house. And so, um, you know, we now eat pizza every Friday night. So I was thinking that a restaurant that wants to build in some recurring revenue could decide to offer, you know, chicken, fried chicken Wednesday like Starmount does, but it's an automatic delivery. Like you sign up and every Wednesday at 530, we're going to be at your house delivering that or we'll have it ready for you at takeout. And it builds that habit, but it also automates it and there's that recurring revenue. Um, so brilliant. So things, things like that, there are nine models that Warlow talks about for recurring revenue. Um, and there, there are other drivers, but those are some examples of the kinds of things that I think can be extremely powerful to hit any of those recover, rebuild, reinvent, and relaunch. Yeah, it's, it sounds like a lot of those are especially useful right now as businesses can't do business as usual and are trying to figure out different ways. It's a good time to assess what you have, what your capabilities are. And, you know, even when we talk about canless, uh, you know, if, if they only thought of themselves as a fine dining restaurant, then stay at home means close down, shut down. Yeah. But if they pivot and think about themselves as just delighting customers with great food, uh, then they can do that any way they want to. Uh, and it, it, instead of creating a limiting mindset, it creates an unlimited mindset and there's more opportunities to be able to serve people. Yep, that's exactly right. And, and even in the marketing, I know that's your specialty, David. Um, in the marketing, one of the thoughts, you know, because restaurants are having to make some of the biggest adjustments right now, at least that's what we're, we're certainly seeing a lot of in the news. But one of the ideas around in, uh, changing our marketing is, you know, if people are getting takeout all the time from certain restaurants and that restaurant caters to your target market, like Canlis is a great example of the people that would buy from Canlis that need food are going to be folks that have always purchased from Canlis, but maybe now they're not buying fine dining, but they are folks with high net worth or something like that. Well, who else wants to get in front of people that have high net worth? So could you form a strategic partnership for marketing purposes to drop your flyers in each takeout box for Canlis 
And then suddenly you're getting into people's homes at a time when they aren't getting much into their homes besides maybe groceries and takeout. Mm -hmm. So looking at ways to partner with other customers or other businesses that go after the same customers as you do can create all kinds of new opportunities. The other things that I, I think about is, you know, expanding how you use your resources. So um, back in my Procter and Gamble days, when I was working with our packing material suppliers, there were times when we would go and bring a team that would work because the, the supplier was short staffed or the skills that they needed were not in as um, much abundance as we needed them to be. So we would bring a team from Procter and Gamble down into our supplier's plan and we would provide you know, access to the resources they need to boost their production and boost the quality checks that needed to be done to ensure that we got what we wanted. And so, you know, being really creative about how you use the resources you have can open up new longer term opportunities when this is behind us. Well, it's interesting, you know, from a pivot perspective, I, th I think you and, you and Blaze were talking about this yesterday and just it really hit my heart yesterday when I heard and Blaze came into my office and started talking about it was when talking about pivoting, we were talking about nonprofits and for profits, but to hear the news that Homeland Creamery and other uh, milk companies are dumping hundreds or thousands of gallons of milk because they can't sell it because they can't distribute it. That's terrible. Not yes. on the company. That's a terrible tragedy that it has to happen. And so how can we make it not have to happen? And so what I heard, and I don't know if this was a direct correlation from your conversation or if this was just what we walked into, but it sounds like why aren't people stepping up and saying, we'll help provide these extra trucks. We'll go rent from Penske. We'll rent from U-Haul. We will get these trucks. We'll, we'll get some workers to deliver this to the 26 million people that just lost their jobs. Right. To the 56% or 60% of kids that, that don't get a second meal at home that now don't get a first meal because they're not in school. Well, you know, it, that's exactly right. Blaze and I were talking yesterday and the, the concern that I have is that the disconnect between people that have excess resources and excess capacity and capability and those that are, you know, literally dying because they can't get a, gain that access to it. And so figuring out how to put that supply chain together, how to put that, um, and it doesn't even have to be volunteers. I mean, we tend to think about sure. volunteer because that's the, the easy answer, you know, let's get free labor. But there are businesses out there, pay their people to get out there and, you know, bottle the milk and transport it and get it to the places that need it. But we need to help create those conversations and link those people up. And I think that's where the gap is. Or the gap is because we're not thinking creatively enough on ways to go make that happen. You know, I think um, in general, our tendency is to look at what's in front of us and say, well, I may have, you know, extra capacity in space or in materials. Like one of my clients was talking about um, selling off a bunch of inventory that he doesn't need that can be reutilized for making masks because the, the products and services that they offer can be you know, pivoted and reinvented for that. Um, 
I think that there are some great examples of companies out there. I read in the, I think it was in the New York Times about a number of universities that um, they have laboratories, their students aren't there using those laboratories. They have all kinds of N95 masks and you know the laboratory gear and protect PPE for people to use. And so, you know, in this case, they're donating it, but they could also, you know, choose to leverage those resources for a, a benefit, not a gouging, <laughs> not a price gouging, but it doesn't, everything doesn't have to be about free. It can be right. a fair exchange. Well, and when I, when I thought about the milk thing, I mean, there's powdered milk, there's sweetened condensed milk that's, that's shelf stable, right? Why can't we pivot into that from a business perspective? Brilliant. Um, so it's just those opportunities are out there and you know what what i hope we can all gather i hope our listeners can gather is we need to all be out there if you have a passion if you have the ability to add value by connecting folks connect them and if you have the vision and the funding to start up a new venture that does uh, provide for this or if you have some extra workers that you were going to let go maybe you connect them and 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 you're able to pay them, you know, to connect them with a, one of these businesses that does have to pivot. Well, especially since a lot of companies right now are trying to keep as many employees on the payroll as they need them to be doing work. Right. So, you know, if you can pay them to do work that's going to benefit somebody else. First of all, it benefits somebody else and you're paying them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Secondly, you know, I've got to believe that if you are using your resources and paying them to do good work, for the business community, for the 26 million that have filed for unemployment, as you said earlier, David, you know, that's going to come back. And if it doesn't come back directly, like as a, um, as a profit generator for you down the road, it's going to come back in creative ideas, opportunities for new partnerships. People will be reaching out to those who have made an impact here and look, help, looking for ways to help them figure out how to reinvent and grow when this is moved, you know, as we move through this. So there's always good, you know, I, I believe in the, the power of karma too. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And, you know, coming back around, you, you talked about some of the business owners that, that you've worked with that are looking at transitions uh, and they are in their sixties and seventies and early eighties, you know, what's next for them, you know, for, for some of the major hurdles or challenges that they're facing and how can they overcome those? Yeah, you know, I, I'm curious to see how this is going to play out. What I've noticed is that, you know, prior to COVID-19, business owners were sticking around. I mean, the baby boomers are, you know, they are not leaving their business at 65 like they're the previous generation used to. And a lot of it is because, A, they're in great health, relatively speaking, and they're having a good time. I mean, something that they can and should be very proud of. And so, you know, one of the biggest challenges that I think they're going to face right now is around, well, there are two challenges that show up for most business owners as they're thinking about, you know, what's, what's next for them and how to transition their business. And the first one is what you have talked about in your Spartan um, planning newsletter around uncertainty. And, you know, I loved what you wrote in the newsletter about the behavioral finance aspect of uncertainty, which is true, as you know, for all uh, aspects of uncertainty, that we as humans are so much more comfortable 
facing a certain negative outcome, then we are dealing with the uncertainty of not knowing. And there's a lot we don't know right now. We don't know how long this is going to last. We don't know how dire it's going to be. We don't know a lot of things. And so when I think about a business owner's perspective, they not only don't know any of that, but already they are dealing with the uncertainty around finding, finding a buyer or a successor that they can trust, that has the skills and the money to be able to buy them out, even if it's over time, at a, at a level that they can afford to leave at because they've got some number in mind that they probably need to ensure their viable retirement. Um, and right now that number may have just gone up at a time when people can afford less. So um, they're also questioning the process of selling their business. You know, there's the uncertainty of due diligence and the tax implications and will I have to do an earn out? And who can I hire that can guide me through this? Is it my attorney or is it another attorney? Is it my CPA? Is it a broker? Is it a, um, a financial advisor that can give me the, the guidance on what I need to do with my finances and you know, when I get paid out in that uh, moment. And then of course, you're questioning what happens if I have a fabulous buyer and they get cold feet. And I've seen that happen. And I think there are a number of deals that were in process right around the time that the pandemic kind of hit home for many of us. And there's a lot of uncertainty about whether those are gonna go through. I read in today's New York Times that uh, a large, private equity firm is trying to get out of a deal that they're, you know, pretty deep into right now. And, um, you know, so there's all that kind of stuff that's going on. And to make matters worse, you know, no, nobody wants to be a chump. Nobody wants to make a mistake in selling their business and, you know, leave a lot of money on the table. But most owners are not trying to get the most money that they can possibly get out of the business but they've never done this before. And so they're figuring it out for the first time. And so it can be, can be a real challenge. So that's one big piece of it. Um, the second big piece is that this whole process and it's amplified now is extremely emotional. You know, um, most business owners that are looking to uh, transition their business and even those today that are looking to relaunch, rebuild their business, reinvent, they invested a lot in this business. They've invested a lot of time and energy, They've invested money in building their business. And it is really difficult to not only disconnect from that as you look to sell your business, but it's also really difficult to look at it and say, my gosh, what has happened to it? in this time of COVID-19 and with the economic dynamics that they're having to, to face. So both of those things are huge challenges and there aren't easy answers. I mean, the uncertainty isn't just gonna go away overnight and we've all got to deal with our emotions. So one of the things related to coping that, that you put together is the top five coping strategies during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Can you give us some key takeaways that, that our audience could glean from that? 
Yeah, you know, one of them was what we were just talking about with acknowledging and naming it and, and being freed up then to deal with it in a much more professional, balanced, objective way and, um, and allowing ourselves that grace to get to that point. Um, another one that I think is really important, you know, all of our lives have been upended in some way. And so for those of us that have the, the privilege of working from home, we might benefit greatly from sticking to our routines that look a lot like what life looked like before we started working from home. So for example, every morning, I'm still getting up at the same time. I'm still doing my same morning routine. I'm still putting on professional clothes. And you know, the fact that I'm sitting down in my home office is no different than if I were going to the office. So I think those routines can give us a sense of stability and a sense of control and right now, a lot of us feel like we don't have control. So being able to pull upon something and remind ourselves of that control, I think is very powerful. Um, another thing that I think is really valuable is that no matter what age you're at, I think that all of us have dealt with something that feels like a crisis to us before. You know, I don't think any of us have ever dealt with exactly this before but we've all dealt with crises that have challenged us and they may have challenged only us or they may have challenged you know, our business or our community or, um, or our family or something like that. But we've all got experiences of challenge and we all have tremendous strengths that have served us well in the past in dealing with that challenge or if it didn't serve us well in dealing with the challenge, it certainly served us well as we learned from what to do in that particular case. And so I think reminding ourselves first of who we are, you know, that who we are matters and that we bring a set of strengths that are incredibly valuable to the world. And then using what we've done in the past to help us cope better and navigate better through this crisis can be a huge advantage. But in the uncertainty and the swirl, we can lose sight of what those strengths are and lose sight of ourselves. So um, there's one more I'd like to add because it's something that uh, I think is hopeful. And, you know, in times of crisis and in times of stress, being, feeling hopeful matters a lot. And so the hopeful piece that I would offer is, and uh, David, I know that this one is going to be um, particularly meaningful to you. It's called the slight edge, but the idea of the slight edge is all about compound interest, you know? So if you put in $500 to your savings account and you come back in a year, you will, by doing nothing else, have $500 and two cents with today's interest rates. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but the, the idea of the slight edge is that you can pick something that moves you forward. Maybe it's something that you want to learn or something that you, a new habit you want to institute. It's something that moves you forward that you just commit to do five minutes a day. And I've got to believe that all of us can find five minutes a day. And you do that for five minutes and at the end of seven days or a week, you will have invested 35 minutes in that new thing or in that habit. And then at the end of a month, it's, you know, two hours and 20 minutes or something like that. And over the course of a year, you can literally 
transform aspects of your life, build new habits. And at the end, it's only taken five minutes. Mm -hmm. The tricky secret around that is that oftentimes when you start doing something for five minutes, I tried this years ago at the gym and I'm doing it now because I've added in a circuit. Um, we walk every morning, but I've added in circuit training in the afternoon. And so I told myself, just five minutes, Abby, five minutes, put on a video, do it for five minutes, and then you're done. But you start doing it and it's like, oh, I could probably do this for 10, yeah. 15. And now I'm doing it, you know, 25 minutes, 30 minutes a day, four, four days a week. And so it's not just about the slight edge for five minutes. It's about, you know, that exponential growth that you can get through the process. Yeah, Donald Miller actually talked about something similar. I think it was on one of his uh, Instagram live that he's been doing. And he, he talked about swimming. You know, he was, he was trying to become someone uh, that exercised and swimming was a low impact activity he could do. And he literally said, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go and swim until I, I'm not enjoying it anymore. You know, and it doesn't matter if it's five minutes or not. Well, no one goes and jumps in the pool and only swims for five minutes. Right. And so by the time he made it just about showing up was the habit. And swimming was the, the byproduct and getting healthier was the benefit. And so I think that's a really powerful practice that we can implement. Well, yeah. and, and it's interesting. Um, I think I could have sworn that I, I heard this on one of Don Miller's podcasts about one of his guests, the five second rule or the six second rule. Five second uh, rule. The five yeah. second yeah. rule. And a lady who wrote a book about the five second rule and that I, I'm, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but essentially what I remember, uh, which is the important part, is what do you remember from a book, <laughs> is, is uh, that essentially your first instinct is generally pretty good. And so my instinct is I need to go work out. I need to eat healthier. I need to, I need to, I need to. And then you start coming up with excuses. You say, well, but you know, today it's a little hot outside or today it's raining, so I can't really go on a walk. So maybe I'll just skip today. I'll do it tomorrow. The, the curse of New Year's resolutions, right? I'm going to do something good. Well, but not today. <laughs> and so the five second rule, what I remember from it was that you need to out loud, start counting from five down to zero and make the decision. I am, or I'm not right then because your instincts are still good. And it can, if you say, I mean, I'm going to, I need to go work out. All right. I need to decide right now. I'm going to start walking out the door in the next five seconds or I'm not. It makes me a much more productive and active person by counting five, four, three, two, oh crud. All right, and I go. Yep. Yeah, I, I know of her. And um, one of the things that she talks about in that process, which is, you know, to your point, makes it so powerful, is that it forces you not only to decide, like you can't just think about it, you have to decide yes, or you decide no in those five seconds. And then it, it forces you, if you decide yes, to be extremely proactive and intentional. And you know, for me, it's all about intention. So if I intend to do something, then by golly, I've got to go do it. And if I don't, I've got five seconds to decide I'm not going to make it happen. And that's okay. But her point is that you will accomplish so much more if you just do it in five seconds. I find if I put myself to the test, I do it almost every time. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, yeah. Well, and you're that kind of proactive person anyway. So you are, you have that bias. Well, I think we're ready for a final rundown. So, so <laughs> Abby, I want to start off with getting a little bit more personal. And so just about you now, you know, I know you overlap with your business overlap with 
and hopefully all of us have some meshing of our personal and work lives, no matter what, but what's one of the most impactful books that you've ever read? Um, so I've actually got two books that I'd like to share. Um, one of them, probably everybody listening has read, and if they haven't, then they should, is uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. I've read that book five times. Um, every time I read it, I feel like I get some new insight from it. But I read that book for the first time in, I don't know, the late 80s, early 90s. And it was one of those transformational experiences for me. And it helped me to understand just how intentional I could, I mean, it was, I came out of reading that book thinking, I could actually plan my life. Like, no, I thought, you know, you just sort of fell into life. I mean, you, a lot you were dealt is what you had to you know, how to work with. But uh, reading that book, I thought I can actually plan this. And, um, you know, I love how he talks about sharpening the saw. So that's one of them. The other is actually another really old book, and you are probably familiar with it too. It's Your Money or Your Life. David, have you read Vicki Robbins and Joe Doming Dominguez? I haven't. Joe's, no. Oh, that's interesting. So Joe has passed away a number of years ago. Vicki Robbins wrote this book many years ago, and what's been so interesting about it is that unbeknownst to her, apparently, because I've done a little bit of research on her, unbeknownst to her, her book or their book is getting a resurgence because there is this fire movement, financially independent, retire early, and there are all these young professionals, millennials typically, that are embracing the fire movement and her book is all about how we exchange our time for money mm. and instead of exchanging our time for money it's how can we figure out what matters most to us and have enough money to do what we want to do and have what we need to have but do it in a way that um that is sustainable over time and so when i first read that i mean i understood the idea of compound interest and you know, that if you, if you put away money, it will make money for you if you invest it wisely with people like, uh, with companies like Spartan uh, Planning. But if you, um, if you do that, it also gives you freedom. You know, and you talk about it all the time, David, you know, it's all about freedom. So to me, that was the realization that if I am intentional about not just saving and investing money for that future where I can retire early if I want to. I'm not retiring anytime soon because I love what I do. And um, if I can position myself to do that, it gives us choices. Okay. And if I get really clear, kind of using the Stephen Covey approach of a mission statement and a vision statement on what I want my life to be about, I can build that. So it married everything from those two books kind of married everything. And in, you know, 1989, 90 sort of set the, stage for the rest of my career and my life. So powerful for me. Wow. Those are some great books that, uh, that we all need to download and start listening to right now. Um, so I mean, you give professional advice for, for a living when you're working with business leaders, give, give some great professional advice. Uh, so what about some of the best professional advice you've ever received? Yeah, I feel really fortunate to have spent my um, early, you know, 14 years of my career right out of grad school at Procter & Gamble. And one of the things that Procter & Gamble is very good at is developing people. 
And in addition to getting a lot of that professional development from the company, the best advice I ever got from all of the managers that I worked with and worked for was the importance of investing in yourself and the idea that when we invest in ourselves, when we, when we professionally and personally develop ourselves, no one can take that away from us. And so we always have that foundation to build upon. And, you know, at a time like this, when the economy is struggling and businesses are, you know, trying to figure out how to stay afloat, knowing that we can depend upon ourselves and that we've got that foundation of development. That's why one of the things I think is so important for companies to focus on now is developing the people that they have, because that'll always serve their business well. And even if those folks end up needing to go somewhere else because you've got to lay them off or furlough them or something like that, you have instilled good um, development in them that will help them and whoever they go work for in the future be successful. So that's really, you know, the best advice for me. And the secondary piece of that is the intentionality of setting a personal you know, I've got a business vision and mission and stuff like that. And many of us have thought about that, but a personal plan. I mean, I've had a personal plan from my, my life since 1989 and a vision mission and a goals package. And I just think that that's so important because it, it, it guides where we go. Wow. That's great. <laughs> well, so, so let's pivot to the opposite. Let's go the other way. So what's some of the worst professional advice you've ever received? Um, well, I've probably had a fair amount of poor advice over the years. Um, fortunately, I didn't take most of it. Um, I've taken some of it, but I haven't taken, taken all of it. Um, I would say that, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. We don't know that it's bad advice oftentimes until afterwards when we look back and go, ooh, I'm sure glad I didn't listen to that, but um, probably the worst advice I got was the idea that you go get a job at a large corporation, in my case, Procter & Gamble, and you know you just figure out how to stay there successfully for 30 years, because at the end of 30 years, you'll be able to retire and um, you, know, you get paid well, you get good benefits and all that kind of stuff. And I remember when I was preparing to leave after 14 years and thinking, I don't know if this is, you know, if my new business is going to fly or not. I don't know if I'll be successful, but I have to try. I, I want it badly enough and I'm willing to work at it and I have confidence in myself that I can do it. But there were plenty of people that said, what are you doing? I'm how could you walk away from this perfectly good job with great pay and great benefits to, to the unknown? Stick it out. And, you know, obviously I didn't. And I, I fortunately prepared myself to never look back. But I can, I can look back now and say that I'm so glad I did not take that advice. Yeah, I think you've proven that, that you made the right decision there. <laughs> it feels uh, that way to me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> And speaking about looking back, you know, you know, is there anything you wish you could go back and do better, uh, get a do-over on? Um, you know, it's an interesting question because I'll say for sure there are mistakes that I've made, plenty of mistakes, plenty of things that, you know, I wish that I had done differently or, um, you know, or something like that. 
but the truth is that there's there isn't anything that I really today sit and say, gosh, I wish I could do over. Because I look at some of the, um, the grueling roles and experiences and difficulties that I had when I was at P&G. And I look at some of the challenges that I had as I was starting my company, you know, nearly 20 years ago. And the, the truth is that all of those have contributed to not only making me who I am today, but so much of it has helped me be a better coach, a better advisor, a better guide, because there are very few things that I have come into, um, into a conversation with a client or with a uh, prospect or in my network that I can't relate to in some way. And for better or worse, relate to it in a way like, oh yeah, I remember doing something like that. You know, I remember struggling with that same thing because, you know, I, I did lots of things through those years that I would not want, you know, published on the front page of the paper because it wasn't my best professional self. But I learned a lot from it and it's made me better at being able to coach other people, but also better at being able to understand, you know, that people, you know, struggle with the whole range of different things and that's normal and it's okay the opportunity is to help navigate them through it to a place that they can be really proud of and be really successful in that next phase of, of life so you just said the next phase of life so final question here what what is the next big thing for you personally or professionally so i'm i'm really excited about the whole concept of supporting our business community, our business leaders. And when you introduced the show today, David, you talked about how all of you listening are leaders. And I do believe that um, and agree with that. And so I'm very excited about continuing to find ways to support, you know, the, the leaders in the triad, the businesses in the triad, the people that you and I know and love that we interact with every day. And doing that in a variety of different ways. Um, one of the programs that I'm launching soon is a program to help um, business leaders do that intentional rebuild, recover, you know, reinvent and relaunch. And um, doing it in a way that not only mines the platform that I've got access to with, um, with Value Builder, and not only mines any of the experience and resources that I can bring, but also mines a peer group, you know, mines the brilliance of so many people that are in our business community that have experiences and wisdom to share and helping create an, an environment and a methodology and a process to get that sharing done so that our businesses and our economy here will thrive. So that's what's exciting for me. Um, and I'm looking forward to, to launching that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Abby, for joining us. This has been just incredible. There's so many resources for people to glean, I think, from our conversation and from the wisdom you brought. I wanted to uh, pitch a couple things. One is Abby's book, 128 Tips to Make You a More Effective Leader. So uh, actually haven't, I don't know if you would send that out to anyone who reaches out, but if you want that, then reach out. Abby, do you want to give your contact info here? Or do you want them to contact us? 
Um, so my email address is abby at leadershiplegacygroup.com, abby at leadershiplegacygroup.com. And my phone number is 336-458-9939. And yes, absolutely reach out. Um, I've got a second book too, Straight Talk About Planning Your Succession. So if anybody wants that too, glad to help. And then one final thing, just I'm going to reiterate the introduction. When you think about leadership challenges, succession planning, or building the value of your business, you should think Abby. So speaking of Abby, uh, we are going to have her as a featured speaker at our 2020 Spartan Pro Day. Now, as every one of you listeners out there knows, is there going to be a Spartan Pro Day? We'll see. Uh, <laughs> there's going to be a Spartan Pro Day. Is it going to be in person or not? We'll see. <clears throat> as of right now, it is booked and set for October 13th at the uh, Cameron Event Center and uh, just going to be a fantastic venue. Hopefully we get to see it. Hopefully we come out of this COVID madness and people are just chomping at the bit to, to see people again, to get together, to hear live content. If so, we're going to be excited to have you there. If not, we're going to pivot just like we've been pivoting, just like we're teaching you how to pivot. And we will do a, a, an out of the park online event. So either way, go to www.spartanproday.com, spartanproday.com, sign up, get your ticket. The tickets are limited and we're going to open up registration immediately. So I just want to say I attended last year and there were a phenomenal combination of speakers to help you build and grow your business in, from all different angles, whether it was David Lillard who did an outstanding program on marketing and branding your business a representative from the school system who has built and a principal of the school jed jed o'donnell yep. right, who has built a an incredible school of um, high performing students to uh speakers that talked about how to um how to create your own sort of uh, business plan, the Michael Hyatt group. It was a day chock full of brilliant ideas. I love John Rulin and his giftology. So every hour of that day was filled with amazing speakers who looked at your business in all different ways. And then the networking in between meetings and over lunch was phenomenal also. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much for that plug, Abby. We'd love to see you all there. Thanks for listening. Keep tuned for the, the next podcast drop as well.